verse up on the screen that will frame the conversation that I want to have today with you. It was written by Peter in one of his epistles, one of his letters to the church. The church was, at that time, it was scattered all over the parts of the world because uh, the practice of your enemies was to come in and capture your land, and they didn't put you in a concentration camp. What they did was they relocated you into different parts of the world so you couldn't come together, you know, so you couldn't get any traction. And so Peter writes to people who have lost their homes. They don't live in their countries anymore. They've been moved, deported, and they're living in various parts of the world, and they don't know who they are. Peter writes to them, and he says, These trials have come so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that is tested by the fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. For even though you've not seen him, you love him. And you rejoice with an indescribable joy, for you are, even now, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I thought salvation was something we got. I thought it was something that was given to us like a possession. I, I thought it was something that could be had or lost, you know. Can you lose your salvation? It turns out that's not what it is at all. Salvation is a work. It's a label for what God is doing in us. It's called salvation. Makes sense? By grace are you saved yourselves. It is, not the, it is the gift of God. Well, grace is a gift of God. Salvation is the effect of that gift on our lives. <clears throat> are we okay? This is a pretty fast start for us, isn't it? But it is March. We were, uh, we were off on break last uh, week in Holland, my wife and I, uh, we celebrated our 33rd anniversary. Well, I'm pretty excited about that. Now I understand I've only, I'm only 38, but I've been, we were married at five years old. We knew we loved each other and just took off together at five. I mean, got married and took off together at five. Oh, really, it was uh, not last week when we celebrated it. It was last Friday, uh, a week after our anniversary, where we were sitting in the Kentucky Fried Chicken where Dutchmen do all their fine dining at $5 Phillips. And I said, I said, well, 33 years ago today, you were asking yourself, what on earth have I gotten myself into? She said, now why would you say that? I said, because when you're married for a few months and you walk down the hallway, you open the bedroom door and you look in and you see your new wife sitting on the couch looking at the marriage certificate crying. <laughs> and you were. That's not a good sign. You can't tell me you were not thinking, what have I gotten myself into? A lot of things work that way, don't they? You'll start out and you'll think, I think I know what this is. I think I understand this. Then you get yourself into it and all of a sudden it is not what you imagine. It is longer, it's harder, it's better, it's way better. But it's longer and harder, and it's not as cool and glamorous as you first thought. 
Salvation is very much that way. We're learning, aren't we, that salvation uh, something that starts in a moment, but it takes an entire lifetime. Salvation is the scope of our journey. It is not just the starting point. It's not, I got saved, now what? It's this whole what is the process by which God is saving us even though He has already started. God comes into our predicament. He finds the mess that we're in and He decides to act. When He decides, nobody knows it because you can't tell the difference immediately. But God starts moving things, if you will. Things that you cannot see. And when He starts moving things, things start going the way that they need to go in order for you to get out of your predicament. Invariably, though, you'll be partway through your leaving this predicament, this kind of mess, this lifestyle that you're sick of. You'll be partway through the leaving when you'll run into a question that goes something like this. Do you really want out or are you just trying to get God to come in? Do you really want to leave all of that behind you and go to a different place or are you just trying to get God to come into your place and make it 2.0, same? That's a big question. Because you understand, since you were born, you can't even imagine another place than the place or the predicament that you don't even have a vision for this. And so every verse you hear, every song you sing, you simply translate it in the language of the predicament that you're in. You say, oh, I know what that means. You don't know anything of what that means. For the Bible's written from another predicament, not the one you're in. Are you tracking? So you need to ask yourself the question, do I really want a different predicament or am I asking God to come in and just make this life better? You see, I think it's too often that. Because when we pray to become Christians, we pray that God will come into our lives. Look, He ain't interested in coming into your life. He's interested in getting you in His life. <laughs> That's a different life. Boy, we have started quick, haven't we? You see, that's what we try to do though. Come into my life and fix it. Not interested in that. I'll come in, but it's to get you out. So we go through that kind of wrestling, that season, that passage, if you will, into another one where God starts to separate us from all of the things that we've relied on and loved and found pleasure in. Nothing wrong with that. Every time God separates us from these things because they become like gods to us. Now we would never, ever, ever admit to idolatry in a scientific age. Who believes in such things? But there are invisible idols. There are little gods that we set up and we sacrifice for these things because those things provide the good life. And so the question that confronts us at this passage is so often, what is the good life? 
Who even knows what the good life is? And who is the one who's going to deliver that for you? I mean, you have this vision of what you want to be when everything works out, but who's going to make that happen? What are the answers for that? Do you see it? And the problem is, we have a thousand answers. Chesterton said, if a man doesn't believe in God, he doesn't believe in nothing. He believes in everything. He looks in every direction to find the effect that God was supposed to provide. And so we go through this whole season of disentangling ourselves. And it's a long, arduous process which leads us into this stage that, or this season that uh, Chris talked about last week where God does something miraculous and He starts to separate us from the life that we used to have. This is where we start to get it, I think, for the first time. Whoa, wait a minute. He's not going to come in. He's actually going to take me out. He's actually going to change everything about my life. I mean, even stuff I didn't ask him to change is getting left behind. That's scary. The trouble is, whenever we try to leave our former life, like the Egyptians, it comes after us, pursues us. It's our friends, it's all the things we're attached to, it's our routines, our security, it comes after us says, you won't make it without me. But God will perform a season in our lives, I believe, where He separates us once and for all from the things that we used to be attached to. I just pause and say this is a cynical society today in which very few people believe in the miracle of the parting of the sea. I think it's a society where people think that their past is always chasing them and the best they can do is just hope to get through life without getting caught. You're trying to stay one or two steps ahead because you think, you know, I'm always tempted to go back. Always feel the pleasure of what I used to have before. Can I tell you, even if you're cynical about this, God still has the power to separate you someday from all that crap. You may not believe that, but I could stand one person up after another for whom that is true. They were one day as cynical as you were or are now, and God miraculously delivered them. I don't know how He did it. You send them to a counselor, He'd only be keeping score. He wouldn't know either. God has the power to do that. So the question here is, what is God delivering you from? What are you attached to? And has there been a season in your life where you felt, listen to me, the momentum change? Has there been a season where you felt a gravitational pull, as Chris said, from heaven? Not one that's always trying to pull you back. You felt one pulling you forward. That's a miracle. Are you with me? And then comes this next season called a test this is the wilderness it's what Peter was talking about there will come a time in your life I guarantee it where God will lead you into the wilderness and there he will test you it will seem to you in those days 
that a lot of what you believed before isn't true. It will feel to you like your prayers are not being heard. And you'll wonder, what is the point? It will seem like you can't get any traction, like there's no end in sight. This is a season in our lives, and can I say from the very beginning, this is not only normal, this is necessary. God has to do this. You will be tempted to think, if there is a God, and if He hears prayers, then why is He not answering my prayers to get me out of this awful situation? You understand, it's because there is a God that you're in that situation. And you'll be tempted to think, I must not have any faith. Because if I had faith, I would be able to speak this out of existence. I would say to this mountain, be moved, and it would be moved. But can I say to you, it is precisely because you have faith that you're in this situation. For one thing we know about the wilderness 100% of the time, as a Christian, as a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of God, then your instinct here is to think something's wrong, got to find out what it is, fix it, so I can get back to the other life that I had before everything was blowing up. Are you with me? That's your instinct. Sometimes as a Christian you have that instinct. Something must be wrong or I wouldn't be out here. No, something is right and that's why you're out here. Because this is part of the conversion process. Can I remind you that all of the changing that happened from the time they left Egypt to the time they got to the wilderness was at best a few months. But they spent 40 years out here. This is the brunt of the Christian journey. This is where the hard work is done. So this doesn't prove that you don't have faith. Proves that you do. And it proves God is up to something. Now what is He up to? It's a test. They came through the Red Sea. Waters parted, they got on the other side, they started to sing a song. Look at the screen, you'll see the very next thing that happened. They were led to this place where there was no water, and it said, there the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there He tested them. Then the Lord said, chapter 16, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you, and the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them, whether they will follow my instructions. And then four chapters later, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, God. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. So we know that this is a test. This is a place where God tests us and it's a place where we test God. This is natural. It's the adolescence in growing up. Are you with me? When we test God out here, when things run out, we're out of resources, can't get any traction and it's hard and it's hot and we're not going anywhere, we want to find out if God can do what He said He can do. Because if He can't, we should make other plans. Not only that, but Jesus Himself would tell you to make other plans. He'd take you out here and say, if the God you serve cannot meet your needs here, you need a new God. 
Go get him. It just so happens that the one he speaks of is the God who can help you out here. We just have to figure that out. And it takes a test in order you would never know this apart from a test. When I was in school, we'd have standardized tests. I hated them. Some of you do. You have exams when you get out of college to see if you can pass the bar so you can get into your profession. That's a test. And what they did when I was a kid was they were, uh, the teachers changed their personalities. They uh, don't happen to them. A day ago, they were my friend. They were trying to teach me stuff. I wasn't listening, but they were trying. They were on my side. And then all of a sudden, when the test, the standardized test was handed out, they got cold, they got sterile, they got kind of hands-off. And you'd walk up and you'd say, well, you know, can you explain this question to me? And the teacher just kind of go... It's what happens today when they take I-step, you know? This friend all of a sudden becomes a prison guard. You're thinking, what happened to her? She's changed. She don't want to cheat. So she's like removed. And so whenever I hear the word God has come to test you, I get nervous. I see God is sitting behind a desk and saying, we'll see how you do. You should have paid attention. Now I'm going to get you. See, that's what a bad teacher does. But that is not what God does. For starters, God already knows how you're going to do. He knows whether you know the information or not. There's no point faking it. But he also knows that you only believe the information, you don't really know it. You came to church, you heard a whole bunch of sermons, read a few verses, wrote them on cards, put them in your car, sang hymns, sang praise songs, and you nodded the whole time. Some of you are doing it now. I'm saying stuff and you're going, yep, yep, yep. You don't know this. You believe it, but you don't know it. The desert is the place where you got to know it or you're dead. The desert is a place where God takes all the stuff you believe and He helps you know it. Because it becomes for you in that moment life or death. When I was back at uh, Indiana Wesleyan as an undergraduate back in the late 1800s, I went into a theology class and uh, the professor handed us a pen as we were taking the final exam. Is on Paul's epistles. He wrote 13 of these things, you know. And on the test uh, was a question about halfway through. And the question was, uh, according to 2 Corinthians 5.19, what is God doing? I looked up at the professor and he wasn't looking up. He's just reading something. And I thought to myself, you're a mean old codger, aren't you? There's 13 epistles. And you have the nerve to say in 2 Corinthians 5.19. I remember trying to get his attention going, well, whole class. He would just go, see, he was gotcha. Or was he? Or was he? 
sat there looking at my answer form, not a clue in my head, twirling the pen that he gave me, when all of a sudden I looked at the pen, and he had inscribed on the pen, <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5, 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, and he has given us this message of reconciliation. Like a lightning bolt, you could hear it hit members in the class at different times. The bright ones were first. They were further ahead. And all of a sudden you'd hear this, whoa! And it was it. You'd look around like someone just got hit. Thinking, man, what is his problem? Shut up! Until it happened to you. Then you went, whoa! There it is! And you started writing it down. And then I looked at the old guy and I thought to myself, you are a genius. <laughs> I have never forgotten 2 Corinthians 5.19 because I learned it in a test. I learned it when I needed it or I was dead. Are you with me? There's a whole bunch of stuff you only believe you don't know. But God will get you out here and you will be run out of everything. And all of a sudden, the stuff that you already will believe will become a living reality for, the, for, for you. And you will hold on to that for the rest of your life. Now, I say that, I know, largely to a group of 20-somethings. I'm just serving you notice. That day will come. And it will dawn on you. What's happening out here, people, is that God is changing our whole way of thinking, our whole way of living. And that's why it takes so stinking long. Let me explain. When you're in Egypt, you're in slavery. And when you're in slavery, the thing that you need more than anything else is food. Food is to a prisoner what cigarettes are in the prison yard at a correctional facility. It's the currency. Because nobody's getting paid. Everybody's working for free. And so the food is the fuel. The food is the economy. It's the way you keep score. You read diaries of people that were in prison or concentration camps. Victor Frankl's, for instance, the meaning. You, it's about food. There's stories about how prisoners in concentration camps can get more food from other prisoners. How they can be creative with the food. This is probably why when they got out of Egypt, the Israelites never asked for anything more than food. Have you ever noticed that? They didn't ask for entertainment, circuses. They just wanted food because food was the only thing you have when you're a prisoner. So you learn if you're going to have enough food, you have to be creative and you have to feed as much as it takes in order to eat and then save the rest because in Egypt the Pharaoh can change his mind at any moment and the economy could just change on you. The market could crash. And if it crashes and you don't have any food, you're in trouble. But if you've been smart, if you've been saving it, 
And you've been using it to leverage other privileges for yourself. I give you a little food and in exchange for that, you give me something that I need. Then food becomes the whole economy. See, you have to think like a prisoner in order to understand why there's so much focus on the food. The food is what we all aspire for. It's how things get done. So whoever has the most food has the most. So we shouldn't be surprised when God delivers them from Egypt and He puts them in the wilderness and He says to them, in the morning you will go out and gather what you need for that day. And at noon, it will all dry up and be gone. Don't worry about it. Tomorrow will come, and there will be more food. You See it? Even though they are out of Egypt, they still have Egypt in them. Because the first thing they do is they start stashing the stuff that God provided. That's what they were doing. So they're, all they're doing is using God's provisions in the same economy. Are you tracking? They're saying, we know how things get done. We know what's important. You don't need to tell us this. We know how to save it, how to leverage it, and how to get what we want from what we got. All we want you to do is write the checks. So you give us the food and then we'll take over. Now he's got to get Egypt out of them. That's why it takes 40 years. Because we can say that we trust God. But in reality, do we? Because I think our pattern is to come into hard times like this and say to God, I know what the good life is. I know what you need to do. That's why I'm praying. I'm just asking you to do it. This is like saying to God, just sign the check. Okay, I'm not being flippant about this. God, it's pretty clear what I need. We all know what the good life is. Now simply provide it. You're good for it. I know you are. And God, I need it by such and such a time. So that, not the food, that is the thing that God is trying to change out here. He's trying to say to us in this dry, arid place where some of you are right now. He's trying to say, I know what the good life is. And what I am giving you is more valuable than what you're asking for. And my presence is more valuable than your preparation. My favor means more than your resources or what you have stashed. 
What you share is more valuable than the stuff you actually use. That's the real score. What is happening inside of you is more important than what is happening to you. You must not let the wilderness destroy the person that you are. You see, and I can stand here and I can say it. And you go, yeah, that makes wonderful sense. Well, it makes sense because it's right. But you can't know it until you're out here and you have nothing else. When we come out here, we ask God to bless the stuff that we have done. That's what we do. Is that not, is that not, not why you're in school? Is that not why you're in college right now? Is you say, because dude, I understand the economy. Here's the economy. People with degrees have a better chance of getting a job. And those with a better chance of getting a job have a better chance of making more money. We have the data. And those who make more money have a better chance at a stable life. And those with a stable life have a better chance at happiness. Are you tracking with me? So what we do is we prepare, we plan, we make all of these goals in life, and then we call in God and we say, and we're not trying to be flippant about this because I do it all the time. I'll plan, 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 plan. I'm an over-preparer, you guys. And then when I'm done, I will simply say, okay, now God, bless the work of my hands. But do you understand, people, out here, a PhD means deadly. It can't get you anything out here if God doesn't bless it. It's quiet. Are you bored or are you tracking? I can't tell. When I was a, a young man, uh, we had a son, and uh, he believed in the tooth fairy. And I loved it. He got to be four or five years old. I know some of you are like, you let your children believe in the tooth fairy? Whatever. <laughs> I didn't want him to lose, you know, that innocence. And he got to be four or five years old, and uh, all of a sudden he started to catch on. He started to think, you know what, I, I don't think there really is. He didn't know what was going on. But he said, I don't think there really is a tooth fairy. You see, up to that point, the system worked pretty clear. When your tooth fell out, you went into the room, you showed it to your parents. You say, look at that, I lost a tooth. The parents would then say, you know what to do. So you took the tooth, you put it under your pillow, and you went to sleep, and you waited. Sure enough, in the morning when you woke up, there was money under your pillow. Depending on who your daddy was, there was a quarter or there was a buck or a credit card, something. <laughs> but he got to be about four or five years old and he said, I don't think there's a tooth fairy. And I went into a panic. It was in February, I think, and there was snow outside. And I went into his room when the tooth fell out. And before he went to bed... I had everything set up. I propped up his window so it would fall down after I left the room. Then I went outside in the yard and I walked along the side of the house so he would not see my footsteps. And I started making footprints in the snow, leaving the window 
going across the yard. Then I went back inside and I said, you should probably go to bed. And it was on cue, you guys. He got into the room and no sooner did he get in the room and the window went, bam, it closed. And he goes, Dad, somebody just came in or went out my window. I went, what do you think it was? He goes, I don't think it was anything. I went over, pulled back the curtains. I said, oh my goodness, look at the snow tracks. And he looked outside and he saw tracks. And he said, do you think there's a tooth fairy? I went out and told my wife, you married a genius. That was my 15 minutes, I'm just telling you. There came a time when he got so old I couldn't fool him anymore. You might say he grew up. And when he grew up, what he realized was all of that other infrastructure, to go to bed at the right time, to show the tooth to your parents, put it under your pillow, fall asleep and wait real hard, all of that was really important. He knew that because it was part of the stuff. But what he learned when he got older, you guys, and more mature, was that what showed up under the pillow that night was really the result of one man called a father who'd come in and give it to him. You know where I'm going, don't you? Some of you were over-planners and over-preparers and you like to stash stuff and save it and you tell yourself, you can't tell me that that stuff's not important. No, it is vitally important. But what I'm telling you is, it's not the whole story. It's just true enough to reinforce the narrative. And the narrative is, the person with the plan is the person with the power. So you go in with all the plans and preparation and the person who was most prepared is the one who will succeed. Someday when we grow up we will realize that what we get out of life all the planning aside is the stuff that the Father has put under our pillow. Not the stuff that we have planned and prepared for. We have only given Him something to use. But it is not our plans and it is not our preparation that is our advantage. It is the favor from God alone that gives us the advantage. Are you with me? You're well organized. You're really smart. You're one of 10 million. How many you want? But the one that really separates the people from one another is the favored and the presence of God. And you can't learn that unless He takes everything else away. And that's why I say, this is not only normal, it's necessary. Because you came out of Egypt with it in you. And this is the place where some of you are this morning, where God is very slowly taking it out into this Jesus waltzes one day like a man that came straight from the wilderness. This is what he says. Do not worry. Don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll wear. Life's more important than food, and the body's more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have storerooms or barns. They don't have halls of fame. They don't have stock markets. Yet God feeds them, and you are more valuable than the birds. 
So don't set your heart on what you'll eat or drink. Don't worry about that. The pagans run after these things. And your father of the desert knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. And he said these things to believers. He said them to believers. What does it mean for you to trust God where you're at? Undoubtedly, some of you have hit a place where you cannot get any traction. You feel stuck. You wonder if God's even there. I'm telling you this morning, you, you, you didn't do something wrong. God's not trying to punish you. This isn't a curse. He's not trying to get you or prove how much faith you don't have. This is not what's happening. God is taking you to a place in your life where he can do some of the most important work that could ever be done. Because the reality is nobody in the land where you're going thinks the way that you think now. Nobody in heaven has Egypt's economy. They all get it. And all God is doing is putting you in a situation where you'll get it too before you go. That is the freest, most abundant life out there.